Radio 3, live on the web, rthk.org.hk. Money Talk. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to the final Money Talk of the week. It's Friday the 18th of November and this is Peter Lewis with the morning's business and finance headlines. Officials from 21 Asia-Pacific economies have gathered in Bangkok for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Ministerial Meeting, which is which started yesterday. During the week of events, officials are expected to discuss trade, global supply chains, resuming travel, economic structural reform and promoting the indigenous economy. In written remarks to a group of business executives at the start of the summit, President Xi Jinping said Asia-Pacific is no one's backyard and should not become an arena for a big power contest. No attempt to wage a new Cold War will ever be allowed by the people or by our times. He added the world had reached a crucial stage of post-COVID recovery and called for the creation of stable and unimpeded supply chains. Hong Kong's jobless rate eased slightly by 0.1 percentage points to 3.8% between August and October, improving for the sixth consecutive period. The underemployment rate also fell by a similar percentage to 1.7%. Secretary for Labour and Welfare, Chris Sun, said the markets continued to improve as the economy revived, but he noted that tightened financial conditions will continue to constrain labour demand in the short run. UK Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt has outlined plans to raise taxes and cut spending in his autumn statement to fill a £55 billion fiscal hole, that's $65 billion US dollars. The measures include 36 billion US dollars of spending cuts and 30 billion dollars of tax rises. British households are set for the steepest fall in living standards on record and a tax burden of 37.1%, the highest since the Second World War. And as the crypto contagion spreads following the collapse of crypto exchange FTX, the new CEO of FTX, John Ray III, an insolvency professional who oversaw the liquidation of Enron, said yesterday that he had never seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information. On Thursday, Singapore's sovereign wealth fund's Temasek said it had written off its $270 million stake in FTX. It said its trust in FTX's founder and CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, appeared misplaced. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Andrew Ferris, CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. With a view from India is Toby Lawson, Managing Director at Societe Generale. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street, US stocks fell Thursday and bond yields jumped as Federal Reserve officials signalled that their programme of interest rate hikes to slow inflation is far from over. The S&P 500 fell a third of a percent to 3,947. The Dow slipped eight points to 33,546 after falling as much as 314 points earlier in the session. And the Nasdaq Composite declined 0.4% to 11,145. The Pan-European Stock 600 index fell 0.4%. London's FTSE 100 closed 0.1% lower. 
Hong Kong stocks weakened for a second straight day yesterday following inflation warnings from the People's Bank of China and weak 10 cent earnings. The Hang Seng Index fell 211 points or 1.2 percent to 18,046. For the month of November, the benchmark index has rebounded almost 23% from its recent low, putting it back in a bull market. However, for 2022 so far, it's down 23%. The tech index yesterday declined 2.2%. Tencent shares fell 0.8% and Metuan tumbled 5.7% after Tencent said it would return capital to shareholders through a dividend distribution of its 20.3 billion US dollar stake in food delivery firm Metuan. Shares of NetEase tumbled 9% in Hong Kong after announcing it would end its 14-year partnership with Activision Blizzard after January. Blizzard will suspend most online game services in mainland China from January the 23rd, depriving NetEase of a major source of revenue and Chinese users of some of the country's most popular games. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite lost 0.2% to 3,115. After the close, Alibaba reported a surprise drop in profits and almost no growth in revenues as the ongoing COVID-19 situation and a worsening economic outlook stifled consumer spending. China's e-commerce leader reported a net loss of 20.6 billion yuan, that's about 2.9 billion US dollars, compared to analysts' forecasts for a profit of almost the same amount. Revenue grew 3% to 28.9 billion US dollars in the three months to the end of September. And the company said in its earnings release it would raise its share repurchase program by an additional 15 billion US dollars and extend it to the end of the 2025 fiscal year. And that helped sh- shares of, of Alibaba rise 7.8% in New York trading. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil fell 3.3% to a one-month low of $89.78 a barrel. Gold, that's down 0.7% at $1,760 an ounce. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield rose 8 basis points to 3.77%. The US dollars rebounded. The euro is trading at $1.3.5 right now. The bucks at 140.21 Japanese yen. Sterling is 0.4% lower following the UK autumn statement at $1.18.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 29 cents. Chinese yuan is at 7.15 in offshore markets and Bitcoin rose 1% to $16,600. In Asia-Pacific stock markets this morning, the ASX 200 is up 0.1% and the Hang Seng looks like it's going to add about 250 points or so at the open later on this morning. Times 810. Let's welcome our Friday morning guests on the phone this morning for a change. We have Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Good morning. And also with us over in our Queensway studio, we have Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning, Mark. Good morning, Peter and Andrew. Uh, let's start with some of this uh, Hong Kong data, the jobless rates, first of all. It did improve slightly to 3.8%. Uh, that's the sixth consecutive period of improvement. Total employment increased to 3.648 million. The underemployment rate also fell by a similar percentage to 1.7%. Secretary for Labour and Welfare Chris Sun said the market continued to improve as the economy revived. So, um, Andrew and Mark, are you seeing signs of a a revival in in the local economy? What do you think, Andrew? 
Well, I'm taking a deep breath, actually, because uh, Paul Chan has been growing significantly pessimistic. Uh, we now know that um, the economy is going to shrink this year. Now, these are backward-looking uh, numbers. Okay, so this, this doesn't mean anything going forward, but equally going forward, uh, it is, seems to be fairly certain that at least for the first half of the year, we will continue to have a, a shrinking economy. So I'm not quite sure whether the mild improvement is not uh, simply a blip, and possibly reflecting the last spurt of spending, although this hasn't yet come of the famous 5,000, which of which about something like 2,000 will be released per household. Uh, tricky, but uh, I'm not convinced. It's uh, the, the economy is going to decline, it looks like, around 3% year on year. That makes it one of the worst performers um, in the world. In fact, the worst performer yeah. amongst developed economies. So it is in quite a dire situation, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, and that's why they perform, the increase, sorry, let me try that again, the, the improvement in the performance of unemployment, I really don't, don't buy it as a trend. Mm. Mark, what, what are your members saying at the, uh, at the Asia CEO Forum? Well, you know, of course the numbers are, are welcome, but at the same time, just as Andrew said, it doesn't feel like it's recovering that quickly. We have negative growth, the budget deficit well, the financial secretary says over 100, 100 billion. Uh, other outside sources said even more, which mm. is the opposite of what usually happens. Usually the government overestimates the deficit, and outside sources say it's not going to be a deficit, it might be a surplus. So we're in this difficult situation. When you look around, you still see businesses closed. You still see consumer spending not what it should be. Eventually it will come back. But it doesn't look like it now, and especially, as you just said, the, the outlook, especially if, uh, if interest raised, uh, rates continue to rise, is what may seem to be, at least in the short term or maybe even medium term for now, uh, it's not going to help our economy. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The external environment is not good, um, and if anything, maybe getting worse. I mean, certain economies around the world are starting to fall into recession or predicting they're going to fall into recession. That, that's not going to help Hong Kong either, is it? No, it's it's not, and you know we we're, we are we are caught in the middle. But uh, yeah, external external developments are not, and we don't have a lot of flexibility. And of course, on on interest rates, we don't have any flexibility. Mm. Peter, there is also the added issue, and it is both tiresome and perhaps a little bit unnecessary of carry on reflecting on that. Okay, uh, tourism in Hong Kong adds between four and five percent overall in GDP, and it is a major component of retail spending. And tourism in Hong Kong, oh God, here I go again, 75% of it is mainland tourists, and mm. that ain't going to happen. Mm. Possibly it's not going to happen in terms of, uh, of an improvement for the next 365 days. So twiddling with uh, little things like now, instead of having three major tests, you're going to have only two major tests, that addresses the 25% of tourism, not the 75 because this cannot recover till the frontiers are open, and China has no intention of opening the frontier to Hong Kong. This is not a criticism. This is a simple statement. So, you know, I can't, I can't possibly get all excited when a key component of tourism is not going to recover, not because of poor Hong Kong, not because, uh, you know, Paul Chan is not doing enough. <laughs> No, this is part of the good story of Hong Kong, right? Is our connection with China, and we don't we don't have it at the moment. And it, as exactly. as Andrew says, we don't have prospects of that changing. We need a roadmap, an incredible roadmap, and maybe that's difficult to do. But it's uh, 
it's not very helpful. What seems to be happening is these measures, rather than encouraging tourists to come to Hong Kong, they just seem to be encouraging Hong Kongers to go abroad more and spend their money overseas. Well, this, again, this, this is hardly surprising. But in a sense, I have to stress this, this is not a criticism of Hong Kong. In other words, from my point of view, I'm not thumping on the table and says, look, the government is not doing enough, because the government cannot go to China and says, look, lift the frontiers and let the 75% flood. Remember, Hong Kong used to get 55 to 60 million okay, visits, of which 75% were mainland Chinese. Millions. Tens of millions, okay, and right now we are not even running to the million. It runs to, to things like 75, sorry, 95 to 100,000 tourists overall. Yeah, so Hong Kong can't be blamed for that. Yeah, Paul Chan can't be blamed for that. Full stop. Clearly, it's, a, it's this on the top lifts of priorities for the CE and, and the FS and the, and, and the government to try to open those borders. And as Andrew says, uh, we're not getting ver- very far. Maybe we're going to see some progress in the first quarter of next year, but there there are no guarantees for sure. Well, the the thing is, this is our third recession now in the past four years. Do the companies that you represent, Mark, do they feel it is a top priority for the government and enough is being done to dig us out of this recession? Uh, Well, it is, but again, as Andrew says, the government is is restricted in what they can do, including the financial secretary and others, external forces, the uh, the connection with the mainland, all those issues. So we need a break. We need a break uh, going forward. And you know, and and also, you know, the Chinese economy, as has been mentioned, has some issues as well, and that affects us too. Mm. And uh, Peter, without you know, I, I, I'm asking myself, yourself, the question: the famous 800 billion fiscal reserves that has that has dropped by I've forgotten how much, by possibly a half. Well, the whole point of having it there is for a rainy day. My God, this is not a rainy day. This is having a tsunami every 24 <laughs> hours. I mean, if we don't spend it now, when are we going to spend it? Mm. So, you know, pointing the figure and says, look, you know, 800 billion, it was uh, X billion before. It was, I think, well over, went over the 1 trillion mark. But, yeah, it is going to be spent now. Spend it, for God's sakes. <laughs> Okay. Let me ask you both about the summits that we've had uh, this week. First of all, the G20 summit, and now we have uh, the APEX summit, uh, which has started in Bangkok. Uh, Lots of bilateral meetings going on between leaders on the sidelines of these summits, particularly involving President Xi Jinping. Um, Seems to be lots of talk about improving, stabilising relations. Are you encouraged by what you've heard? I'm I'm a little encouraged in the sense that it's nice to have a three-hour meeting between the president of the United States and the president of China, that that helps. And they came out of it actually with some some steps going forward about other officials meeting. Janet Yellen just met uh, uh, Yi Gang, the the current head of the central bank, although he's he's leaving pretty soon. Mm. And she's been one of the most outspoken about the negative impact of the tariffs and so on. But I don't think much is going to change on either side, at least in the in the short to medium term. And you've just heard it again uh, in in the United States, the uh, the U.S. China Economic and Security Review Commission, which which a former government officials that tends to advise Congress and others is talking about new sanctions or a special committee to look at sanctions and even suspending talking, trade. They were yeah, talking about talking altogether. About, which, yeah, suspending MFN, which I'm not even sure is legal under WTO rules, but doesn't mm. seem to matter. But, you know, may not happen, but this is the kind of atmosphere we're in. Andrew, this, what's your this harks back 
this harks back to the time when China had applied to join the WTO. Right. The whole point was it was the economy a relatively free market economy, and how much or how little was, in inverted commas, the government interfering. And uh, against quite bitter opposition in the States, uh, WTO did accept uh, China. And uh, I think it ill behoves now to turn around and say, look, the Chinese economy is effectively run by the government. Yeah, we know that. Okay, state-owned enterprises, uh, 50% plus of whatever happens. So uh, this is not the issue because one could also argue that the government plays a very significant role in Hong Kong. It owns 50% of the land, and the property sector effectively could be driven by China. Same thing one could be said about Singapore. But the but is, is that God is in the details. In other words, you may have state-owned enterprises that play very much by the rules. And the issue of subsidies to the state-owned enterprises, oh, goodness me, this definitely goes spread right across the world. And the United States and the European Union are by no means uh, guiltless of not uh, spending money in order to increase the competitiveness of their own industrial sector. In other words, the, un the unseen let him cast the first stone. So I thought this was a little bit too much. And another difference is at that time, is at the time Andrew was talking about, Bill Clinton and then George W. Bush were actually pushing engagement with uh, with China and other free trade approaches. Joe Biden is never going to do that. I mean, he couldn't even if he wanted to. There's, there's no realistic chance, is there, that Congress is going to suspend altogether trade with China? Uh, that just wouldn't get through, would it? No, I, I wouldn't think so. But there's going to be there going to be some some blips, especially with the with the new speaker who has some of the same views as the old speaker in terms of, of, of China relations. I mean, this has been a big cloud, hasn't it, over trade, over the economy, the state of geopolitical relations between um, the, the US and China. Did, did you at least see a platform where some of the more contentious issues maybe could be resolved, or is it they've just been really brushed aside and they're just going to focus on things they can agree on, uh, like maybe climate change? Well, the, And that's a good one. And, and, of course, John Kerry was just in Sharm el-Sheikh and, and talking to his Chinese counterparts. And, you know, according to the reports, they were making some progress, which is absolutely vital for the rest of us. Are the two, are the two foreign ministers going to make progress? Well, maybe, maybe not so much. I hope they, there's going to be some on the financial side, but we're looking for, you know, a, a few green shoots. And, I'm, you know, we'll, we'll be happy with one or two, I think, at this point. Well, uh, actually, Peter, this is an interesting part. Uh, I have been watching like a hawk for the news because, of course, the, the, the COP27 yeah. finished on Friday, so it's gone. I mean, it is, mm. it is today, and I'm looking forward to their announcement, and I'm afraid I'm not holding my breath. Again, I'm not holding my breath at all. It looks pretty, pretty, pretty grim, however much they might promise to be going forward. Okay? So there's not going to be much it's progress. Going to be no, no, I think it's going to be effectively zero progress, and it's going to be a lot of acrimony. Uh, you have the very strange performance that the third and fourth biggest polluters in the world is China and India, and the first ones, of course, is the United States and the European Union, except the first two have been polluting for nearly 300 years, and the other two have been actively polluting <laughs> in the last 20. So the finger is pointing at their 20-year performance as opposed to the 300-year performance of the other, of the other two. Uh, this is a little bit of a, of a gross exaggeration, but it is true. Okay. 
I mean, the, the sticking points at the, at the, uh, at the um, COP27 seems to be this idea of loss and damage, doesn't it? Uh, compensating yeah. Yeah. poorer right. nations for the pollution of bigger nations. The, the big sticking point, though, is that China thinks that uh, as a developing nation, it should also be compensated. And there seems, Mark, no way the U.S. is going to agree to that, is there? No, there's no way. And, 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 and you know, neither China or India sent their top leaders to, uh, to the COP27 either, which... You know, it's, it's symbolically important. I don't know if substantially important. I mean, for all the talk that we've heard over the past week, we heard President Biden say uh, there's no need for a Cold War between uh, the U.S. and China. President Xi Jinping said yesterday there will never be a Cold War in the Asia-Pacific region. But isn't the reality where the two countries are heading is that both the U.S. and China are fighting each other for supremacy? That's, that's the direction of travel, isn't it? Uh, the best way to put your your finger on the pulse here, and uh, I'm sorry, this is another thing that I've been again watching like a hawk, is, is the wall of uh, defense spending which is taking place in Asia. Quietly, okay, sometimes not that quietly, both from Australia, from Japan, from South Korea, okay, all of them are finding different throws in the wind to grasp, but the word China appears most of the time. In the case of South Korea, of course, it's North Korea. And again, a lot of money is being spent on arms, but, but a great deal more than it was being spent before. Uh, I wouldn't say much in what uh, Germany is doing or the European Union is doing, but uh, these big, big economies with big defense sectors are doing very, very nicely, said he sarcastically. All right. It's true. Uh, semiconductors clearly is the headline of, of, of this dispute. I mean, they, the only ho- hopeful sign is personal relationships Maybe I foolishly say do matter, I think, some, mm-hmm. somewhat. And Biden and she have known each other a long time, actually have spent a lot of time together over the years. And, you know, that might help at least calm the waters uh, for a little while. I hope it does. Okay. Well, have a great weekend. Thank you both very much. You heard there, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. The time's 8.25. On the phone from Mumbai, India, is Toby Lawson, the Managing Director at Society General. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Now, on the, uh, on the G20 summit uh, and also the APEX summit, uh, Pri- Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been there. He had a, a bilateral meeting with President Xi Jinping uh, while he was there as well. Um, has India got what it wanted out of these summits? Well, I think it's most significant uh, that India takes over the G20 presidency for the coming year. Uh, and so India now will be much more in the spotlight, I guess, uh, in terms of leading the dialogue of the G20. And so Modi's comments coming out of that was that obviously wants to push on four main areas, climate action, energy security, public health and SDGs, which are all very, very important for India, but also important for the globe. So I think uh, India sees itself as, a, as a, I guess, a neutral player in the geopolitical uh, uh, sphere currently, but uh, clearly on the economic side wants to ensure that um, its interests are pursued uh, through its uh, presidency of G20 in the coming year. And one of the things it's focused on is its energy uh, security, which it says it's important for its own growth and also um, global growth. Do you think it can continue um, importing Russian oil? It's uh, seen a big jump, hasn't it, now in uh, Russian oil imports? 
Yeah, I think it's gone from like 1% to, to about 20%. Um, and uh, even Treasury Secretary Yellen uh, recognised that uh, India will need to continue to access Russian oil as the world will continue to access Russian oil. And now it's about ensuring that the, the price of Russian oil isn't such that Russia unduly benefits from having uh, this war with the Ukraine. And as such, I think you'll see some uh, news around price caps, etc., being discussed uh, uh, for December. Uh, India will continue to access this oil because it's essential for the Indian economy. And um, one of the things President Xi Jinping asked at the summit was for wealthy G20 nations to contain uh, the fallout from rising interest rates. And in fact, there was a a couple of sentences about that in the communique at the end of the meeting. Um, What can be done there? What what can the big nations do to try and contain uh, the fallout from from particularly uh, the Fed's interest rate campaign? Well, I'm not really sure what, what uh, contained the damage. I guess, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the damage inflation causes. So the first thing to do is really to get it under control. And the only way to really do that uh, is to uh, use monetary policy as a weapon to slow the economy and therefore reduce demand, which ultimately um, feeds through to lower prices. So I guess the other elements of that are ensuring that there is um, a strong trade uh, discussions that uh, tariffs are dropped wherever possible. So some of the heat out of the supply chain, things like that, I think probably reflect some of these comments. But more importantly, I don't think as much central banks can do other than to use its uh, most effective weapon, which is monetary policy, to try and reduce uh, inflation. And that will have a negative impact on growth, as we know. Mm. And the problem is also that uh, some of the big economies are in totally different places, aren't they? Where the US economy is in a totally different position to the Chinese economy and need totally different monetary policies. So it's going to be very difficult to coordinate in any way. Indeed, it'll be very difficult to coordinate. And uh, if you want to back anything, it'll ultimately back self-interest. So countries will act in its own interest, ultimately. Uh, And clearly, it's nice to see coordination at the global level. But ultimately, uh, countries will act in their own interest to a large extent. Uh, And as you're right, even in India, you know, the the balance that India needs to achieve is to curb inflation, but at the same time, not lose momentum on growth, which is critical to their long-term success. So um, you'll see, I think, the Bank of India, the Reserve Bank of India, maybe move 50 basis points and then uh, hold back because uh, the importance for India is to get that balance right to ensure mm. they maintain growth uh, because that's a real key for India's success. Do you think more um, big countries are going to be end up in the position that the UK's found itself in, where it's having to fill now a, a £55 billion fiscal black hole, partly because of inflation? but also because its debt servicing uh, bills have gone up uh, as well as interest rates rise. Now, obviously, the UK has sort of been forced into that position by the markets, but they're not the only ones, are they, with big black holes and surging um, surging debts that they're, that they're pay, having to pay a lot more uh, to, to, uh, in, in interest on? Oh, I agree. I, agree. I think this fiscal austerity is going to have to be a, a, a debate for large economies next year, not just uh, using central bank uh, monetary policy, which will have it you know, have its impact, but it will also be government spending less uh, and ensuring that uh, you know that the fiscal side of the equation is considered as part of the equation, uh, and that is so important. I think, uh, and the UK is being forced into it, as you say, but um, I suspect we'll see this through the United States and other leading economies um, of the West, in particular, next year. 
Okay, Toby. Well, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is Managing Director of Societe Generale. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets at the moment, down in Australia, uh, the SX200 currently up uh, 0.1%. It does look like here in Hong Kong, uh, we're going to see a little bit of a, a rebound after a couple of days of declines. The Hang Seng uh, looks set to add about 230 points, which will put it at about 18,320 at the open. Thank you very much for listening this week. Have a great weekend. Please join me again on Monday morning at 8 o'clock uh, for, uh, for more Money Talk. Uh, stay tuned for Back Chat after the news with Janice Wong and Brian Wong. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast. Sunny periods, uh, the maximum temperature is going to be around 27 degrees. Sunny periods during the weekend as well, and then becoming cloudier gradually with a few showers in the following few days. Temperature right now is 24 degrees, and it's 82% relative humidity. Time's just gone 8.31. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. President Xi Jinping and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida have held talks in Bangkok ahead of the APEC summit, which begins today. It's the first face-to-face meeting between the leaders of China and Japan in three years. State media reported that both sides agreed on the need to develop and stabilise bilateral relations and that high-level exchanges between the countries should be increased. Mr Kishida said he conveyed concerns to President Xi over peace in the Taiwan Strait. The UN Secretary-General has urged delegates at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt to agree to what he called an ambitious and credible deal to assist countries most vulnerable to damage from climate change. Antonio Guterres made the speech as today's deadline loomed and conference delegates remained stuck on several key issues. Richer nations are being asked to cover losses suffered by vulnerable regions battered by weather disasters. Some developing nations have threatened to walk away if countries, including Western powers, fail to meet their demands. We must have agreed solutions in front of us to respond to loss and damage, to close the emissions gap and to deliver on finance. The climate clock is ticking and trust keeps eroding. The parties at COP27 have a chance to make a difference here and now and I urge them to act and act quickly. The Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, has announced she will not seek re-election as the Democratic leader in the chamber as the Republicans take control of the House in January. Addressing fellow congressmen and women, the 82-year-old Miss Pelosi said it was time for the younger generation to take power. I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Ms. Pelosi, the first woman to hold the post, has become one of the most recognizable figures in American politics. She added that American democracy must be defended from forces that wished it harm. And the family of a nine-year-old boy killed on Wednesday during protests in Iran have accused the security forces of carrying out the attack. Kian Pirfalek was among seven people, including a 13-year-old child and a woman, who died after being shot in the city of Izay. The Iranian authorities have called it a terrorist attack, but a man identifying himself as a family member have said that, said that Kian was shot by the security forces as he was being driven home by his father. And there'll be more news on the hour from RTHK.
This is Back Chat for Friday, November the 18th, and welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Janice Wong. On today's Back Chat, we're looking at turmoil in the cryptocurrency markets after crypto exchange FTX filed for bankruptcy protection last Friday, with an estimated 1 million customers and other investors facing total losses in the billions of dollars. On Sunday, Financial Secretary Paul Chan said the collapse of cryptocurrency-related companies one after another showed the need for greater platform transparency and regulatory compliance. Now, FTX was founded in Hong Kong.